What's up guys? So listen, before we get into this week's podcast, I just wanted to bring you a quick message from Eki and I on the podcast you're about to listen to. The story itself is amazing. Eki and I were super happy to get this guy onto the podcast to talk about the work he's doing. But as you're going to hear, he is out in Cameroon at the moment um, and they are having some electricity problems, some Wi-Fi problems. Um, the long and short of it is they struggle to get running water. So the connectivity issues were pretty apparent. Now, when it came to editing this podcast, we wanted to make sure that we left in as much as possible and anything we had to take out, we wanted to make sure that it was either addressed or that we weren't changing the story too much. Now, for the most part, that has happened. However, there was a small segment where Sam was talking about how you can donate um, if you feel like you want to help him and the cause that he's doing out in Cameroon. So we will put all the links in the descriptions. um, But if you do want to find out more, you can go to the Francis Ngannou Foundation page where you can donate. Um, And Sam has also set up a PayPal which is paypal.me forward slash helping Harry. Now, as I said, I put all the info into the descriptions so that if any of you do want to make a donation, it should all be there for you to do so. All right, guys, as always, thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoy the podcast. <laughs> what is that? Jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu is no joke. It takes years to master. Martial arts are a vehicle for developing your human potential. And nothing in my life has ever put me in face with reality better than jujitsu. Training in BJJ offers a powerful lens through which to examine some primary human concerns. Truth versus delusion, self-knowledge, ethics, and overcoming fear. There's more, there's more philosophy in our mats than actually uh, uh, philosophy in any Ivy League school. Welcome to Philosophy. What up, everybody? And welcome to another episode of... Philosophy. How is it going, my bro? I'm chilling like a villain. Fantastic news. It's it's sunny in London know, in a long time, man. We've gone from minus seven to ten, and only British people will think that's like a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it feels amazing. I saw the sun today. And the whole day, I was just looking forward for this moment because today we have a very special guest. Very special guest. Which is our friend, Sam Michael Crook. How you doing, bro? Sam, how's so it going, yeah. my man? Hello, there. Hello. there. I froze a little bit. Yeah. No, no Sam, how's it going? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the on the podcast no worries thank you so much for making the time i'm probably just going to caveat this by saying that sam you are in cameroon yeah with a terrible signal so exactly so if if this podcast ends up being cut together and cobbled together that's why but listen man we're so excited to have you on we've been trying to get this in the diary for a little while um why don't you kick us off by giving us a little overview of, of who you are and what you're doing okay so let's start um i'm a Currently, a, a black belt under Marco Kenya and Ricardo Vieira, Jack Matt. Um, received my black belt from those guys two years ago. And pretty much since then, I've been on and off in Cameroon. Um, but going back before that, uh, I started jujitsu back in 2009. Um, before that, I was pretty unhealthy, not doing any sport, you know, out of shape, um, just smoking and drinking, uh, working full-time job and doing nothing else really uh, until I got persuaded to go to do 
my first, or to, initially it was Muay Thai. I did a couple of Muay Thai sessions, liked it. There was a jujitsu um, class going on as well, you know, so I jumped in on that. Ended up getting more addicted to jujitsu, left the Muay Thai and, and yeah, got started at Dub Nine, so 12 years ago now. Um, I initially, when I started, I guess I was not so. I didn't jump straight in the deep end. I wasn't competing straight away or anything like that. I didn't get, um, I wasn't training like seven days a week for the first few years. I, ju I just liked training a few times a week. And after, it was in maybe when I was a blue belt, maybe three years in that I started to, you know, start really trying to compete, start getting results uh, and start trying to uh, dedicate myself more to the sport. Um, and I was doing terrible, to be honest, for the first three two or three years of competing, I did a terrible job. I was losing every single match. Um, I, I was competing roughly once a month in the UK. Um, and I lost pretty much the first match basically every time uh, until about a year into my purple belt. After about a year of losing every month, I keep going back. Uh, I started suddenly winning that first match um, and started getting some fairly decent results, like winning tournaments in the UK like the British Open, British Nationals uh, and um, a medal at Europeans at Purple Belt in, back in 2015 uh, and then carried on with you know on that kind of um, path for the next few years at Brown Belt um, until 2018 when we come back to I got my black belt from Marco and Rico um, and then six months, about six, seven months after getting my black belt, I was here in Cameroon teaching, teaching a full-time jujitsu, and I've been here since. That's crazy. I actually don't know which question to ask you first, but <laughs> who persuaded you into jujitsu? Like, how did that happen? That, that was my cousin, my cousin Josh, who's a. He was a. We were both in the same kind of situation at the time, like both a bit unhealthy. Um, he started going to kickboxing and like a bit before me and then persuaded me to come along. He was like, oh, it's really good. You know, you should come try it out. And I was a bit reluctant at first, like for maybe a couple of months until he finally dragged me along. And then, yeah, uh, we were doing Thai boxing and, and jiu-jitsu together initially. And like I said, I left Thai boxing behind to pursue jiu-jitsu. He left jiu-jitsu behind to pursue Thai boxing and ended up becoming a uh, a champion Thai boxer. So we both went, both, uh, you know, down the separate, separate arts kind of thing and uh, managed to do a reasonable job. Man, one of the questions I really want to ask you, if you, if you were losing every first match at competition um, for, I think you said a year, why did you keep going back? So I, I, I competed initially when I started doing jiu I never had any, I wasn't a competitive person. I didn't um, have any aspirations to compete or to to be any any kind of competitor. I just wanted to, do it to basically to get into shape and uh, learn learn some skills. I was pretty unathletic at the time. After a, I, don't, I kind of to do a competition at white belt, I think I got guillotined in about thirty seconds, and then I didn't compete again for maybe another year after that. I was like, that's not for me. Um, so then I didn't compete again until blue belt. Um, I don't remember. I won. I won one gold medal at blue belt, 
and then lost everything else after that. Um, maybe it was something only like four uh, four competitions before getting my purple belt. And that's when I started competing a lot. Um, I was competing every month. So it was, the, it was the first year of purple belt that I was talking about that I was losing first match every time. What made me, what I didn't like when I started competing, it was that I was super, as I'm sure most people can relate to, I was super nervous and couldn't control the, I guess the adrenaline dump and didn't like the feeling of not being in control. In the gym, you're relaxed. So when you're fighting, when you're sparring, you've, you've got plenty of time to think and to uh, work out the techniques, see the reaction, everything like that. But when you're under pressure in the competition, suddenly you're getting tired super fast, you're stressed, and yeah, you're not, I didn't feel so in control of my reaction or my, the way I was fighting. And I didn't like it. I didn't like the way I couldn't control how I was fighting. So I was like, okay, I have to do this again. I have to learn how to control that I can, um, yeah, I don't like the feeling of being completely lost like that. So I was forced myself to go back, keep trying. When I started competing, it was a bit of a shock <laughs> trying to deal with the intensity of the guys there. So I want, I basically kept going back to learn, like, to use it as a practice, to a, a competition practice, because I was like, well, there's no one in the gym to to get competition experience with. So I just had to keep competing until I learned how to compete. So basically I used losing in competition. I didn't treat it as like, oh, I need to go to a competition to win. I was using the competitions to learn how to compete. And that's basically what made me kept going back, even though I was losing. Yeah, that's wicked, man. That's that's really admirable, man. And, and I love the idea of like, you were learning how to compete. That's so relevant, definitely. Yeah, because I, I felt completely lost in that situation. And I was like, I can't learn that in the gym. I can learn techniques in the gym and I can plan for the competition and use that as like a practice run um, to see, you know, if I can put into practice what I've learned and then if not, then what I need to work on in the gym, but not necessarily to win, just to, yeah, to understand how to apply the techniques from the gym to uh, a under pressure situation. Yeah, that's actually interesting. Your results actually show show that that's the case because, like, as you were going further in the belts, probably the more comfortable you're becoming in those scenarios. And then yeah, and then you became a black belt, but you kind of had like a different. Your life went in a different direction, meaning you moved to another another country, and from what I understand you moved to be part of a social project, right? That involves jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. Well, it was about, it was about um, seven or eight months later, something like that. I got my black belt in November 2018, and I moved here in the beginning of July 2019. That's cool, man. So, so talk to us about what you're doing out there. So basically, I'm coaching at the Francis Ngannou Foundation, which is... Uh, for those who don't know who Francis is, he's a heavyweight UFC fighter. He's currently the number one contender who's going to be fighting for the belt for the second time on the 27th of March. Uh, so in about five weeks. Um, yeah, he's, I'm in his home village at the moment. He, after having some success as a UFC fighter, he used some of the money he made to open a foundation in his village um, 
to give the the guys here, the kids in the village, an opportunity to train martial arts because as when he was growing up, he never had that kind of opportunity. He, so he had to leave Cameroon uh, to pursue becoming a boxer or become becoming a martial artist. So after leaving, after making enough money, he didn't want other guys here to have to go through the same um, long process that he went through. He wanted to, if possible, to give them the opportunity to train in the village rather than have to leave. So he set up the foundation in 2019. And that's when I saw online a post from Francis. He had put on Instagram uh, advertising that he was looking for volunteer jujitsu, MMA, Thai boxing coaches to come and volunteer for one year in Cameroon to teach at the foundation. There was no information about the, you know, exactly what the situation is here. Just come and volunteer as a coach um, for a year. So basically, I sent a message uh, to him and to the foundation, just uh, basically volunteering myself to come to come and volunteer because I'd had previous experience as a volunteer, although not teaching martial arts, just um, a general volunteer on some some other projects before in Ghana and in Tanzania. So, you know, uh, it's not the first time coming to the continent for me. So I was already used to a bit um, the way of life. You know, coming from a Western lifestyle, it's very different here, but if you've already traveled a bit, it's, it's much easier to adapt to. Uh, so yeah, I didn't expect really anything. I didn't expect them to get back to me because I was, I'm like an unknown person, you know, just a, uh, a black belt from the UK, basically, that's you know, not known internationally or anything like that. Uh, but they got back to me after a few days and then we had a couple of chats and then three months after that, I was here. That's insane. Yeah, and how's it been? Yeah. Um, so, when I first got here, um, I, like I said, I didn't know anything about the foundation. How many students were there? What the situation was? What they'd been learning? Going to be like they just needed um, maybe a jujitsu coach to to work specifically on jujitsu with them. You know, that's I thought I was coming to like give more jujitsu specific knowledge to fighters that were already training here, basically. That's how I envisioned the foundation was going to be. I was like, okay, set up a foundation there to to do all all sorts of martial arts, and they need like specific coaches now to to develop those skills. But I got here, and basically, there's no one no one training at the time. Um, there was a few adults, mate. But the first time when I came here, there was about four or five adults and four kids that came to the the first class. So it was. And it stayed pretty much like that. We had, um, we didn't have any uniforms or anything like that. Time, no geese or no, no uniform. Everyone was just coming in there, you know, in their ordinary clothes. And we were um, basically trying to. I was trying to teach jujitsu to a couple of kids and a couple of adults, um, none of whom had seen jujitsu before. They didn't know what jujitsu was. And obviously, I'm here alone. So normally, when you're teaching in a jujitsu class, you demonstrate on somebody who also knows jiu-jitsu so they have the reactions they understand the situation you can uh kind of show how um how the the two people need to interact and react with each other for the techniques to work so when you're trying to explain everything from scratch to a bunch of beginners um also in a language i didn't speak uh, because they speak french here i didn't speak any french when i came here um yeah, it was difficult and it was 
I wasn't really sure if it was going to work out for a while, like for a few months. So I'd come to the gym in the rain, like nobody would come. Other days, maybe three people, maybe four people, something like that, maybe 10. And it was like super inconsistent. Like I said, we didn't have uniforms. It was really difficult to explain any of the techniques. Jiu-Jitsu is quite visual, so you can get by. But to explain, you know, any more in depth was difficult. So I, I was questioning if it was going to work out for maybe about four or five months until finally Scramble. Um, there's a company from the UK. I'm sure most of the listeners know that's a, a, a reasonable, a reasonably big jiu-jitsu company in the UK. Uh, they they were helping me out for a long time before before I came here. They started sponsoring me back in. 2014 when I was a purple belt in Brazil uh, and when I came here I asked them if they would be interested in sponsoring the, the project like providing some uniforms but that took um and they said yes immediately uh, but that took time to to get the geese made because they made us some custom geese with the, the foundation logo and that, that kind of stuff but it took about five months until after I arrived until we actually had any kind of uniforms here so it wasn't until we started, we had a delivery of geese, had 50, 50 geese delivered, that the, the numbers started to increase, the kids started to realize that it was like actually something, um, you know, like a, pro- a proper sport. They're, they're not just coming to roll around in their, in their normal clothes. Yeah, man. And um, what, what's the standard and quality like now? So, um, right now, so even though it was July 2019 when we started, um, I was I've in 2020. I was stuck in the UK for eight months because of COVID. I went back for a, a, a friend's uh, funeral back in March, and two days after I arrived there, um, they locked all the borders down, so I can I couldn't come back or anything like that. Um, even the day actually it was the day I arrived, they closed all the gyms and everything like that. The day I arrived back in the UK, and then I tried to immediately book a flight to come back to Cameroon because I didn't want to get stuck in the UK because I was already planning to live here at that time. Um, so I was stuck there for eight months and I didn't manage to get back here until uh, November so all in all even though it's been since July 2019 we've only actually had about 10 months of jiu-jitsu training here up until now so it'll be in April will be one year um, but the level is, is good I mean we've got a lot of kids here considering we had like between four and 10 for a long time. Now there's, I've got a register of the kids that are here. There's 117 on the list, but um, out of those, there's about 40 or 50 that are regular and maybe about 30 that come on a daily basis. So that's like from the age of eight all the way up to 27. And yeah, the level is good, but it's taking time. You know, you, you have got to be patient trying to understand how to counter the position and everything like that. So it's uh, been like, I've been trying to use a lot of games, a lot of positional games for them to to kind of um, trick them into into basically playing the positions. And it's working, but it's, yeah, you've got to be patient. Man, that's that's an insane roster though. That, that's really impressive numbers that you've got coming. That's awesome. Yeah, it's about, on, a, on average, it's about... In, in less, uh, okay, so on a seven, seven days a week, it's between 25 and 30 guys come in, but some days it'll be like 40 on, a, on, 
you know, random occasions. That's so cool. That's man. incredible. Yeah. You know, yeah, what and, the... and some of those kids are training um, seven days a week. Or they were training. Seven. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the couple, there's a couple of them since I started making this register about um, in back in November. I mean, in the last 75 days, one of them has been like every 75 days. He hasn't missed a day. This guy, wow. man. How old is he? <laughs> that guy is 15. Wow. Uh, he's got the bug, eh? He's got the jiu-jitsu <laughs> bug. There's the other ones who are 12, 10, 9, who are also coming basically every single day. Man, you know, this is, this is like, um, it's like a weird transition, but I remember listening to a podcast uh, that someone was interviewing you and you were telling the story about how some of these kids have like a very hard life. And uh, I think Ngan also mentioned that him growing up, it is just like work all the time. And I think you mentioned the story of this kid who his brother passed away. And then the next day, mm-hmm. that's the only day I think he missed training. The next day he was there. <laughs> yeah, so it was, a, it was like that at the time. Like, um, it's at the time I was surprised. And now it's quite like a, a you get used to that kind of thing here. It's, um, People dying a lot from, you know, there's conflicts going on in the country. Um, so it's, it's not uncommon for people to have like family members, like lose family members in other parts of the country because of uh, the, basically the war that's going on between two parts of the country. Um, yeah. And I mean, at the time, yeah, it, people, I guess, are very, they're more used to, people dying here than, than we are in, in the UK or in, in Europe. Uh, here, I guess people are so exposed to people being killed that it doesn't, they kind of deal with it much better than, um, than we would. It's, it's a bit difficult to explain. I wouldn't say better, but they're, they're kind of, unfortunately, they're, they're used to losing family members. And not necessarily just due to conflict, but health reasons, like there's inadequate health care. Like if someone gets sick and they can't afford the medicine, you know, it's, it's common that someone can die and they don't even know what, what the, the problem was. Yeah. And it, I mean, there's, you could find like a hundred stories like that. Like if you ask all the students, they probably tell you a similar story. Some family member died like that or died from a conflict, you know, so or in a crash in a, in a, uh, like a traffic accident, which is another super common, um, I guess, tragedy, tragedy that happens here all the time. For example, uh, what, two weeks ago, there was a, a big uh, truck crash in the nearby town. I think like 56 people died because a, a bus hit um, a lorry carrying petrol and exploded. Um, and you know you can see on the news every couple of days there's some truck crashing somewhere with people getting killed at a bus crashing um yeah this it's ridiculous if you follow Cameroonian news the number of people that you see dying from uh traffic accidents and you know like you're not you're not in the sort of like where you are it's not necessarily the capital no, so I'm in a, I'm in a village. Mm-hmm. So, so we're about six hours away from the capital. Wow. So like I'm I'm imagining that um, 
you have less access to a lot of a lot of the things you'd have here and that the kids the lifestyle of the kids that interact with you of a lot of your students is muchly working in the in the land and helping at home and i wonder what role do you think jujitsu plays in their life yes it's a bit complicated because okay so yeah like you're right most of the people here most of the families here make a living from working on the farm they you know have their crops they grow what they need um to eat in the house and they'll sell some a lot a lot of the families will sell some of their crops to make a bit of money to buy other stuff um it's not very easy to get other kinds of work here um like it would be in a city uh there's like i said a few people who have like bars or or small shops selling like eggs and biscuits and stuff like that um but because of the that lifestyle is difficult for many of the adults in the village to to come and train jujitsu because it's basically a leisure activity right it's something you do generally for fun and most time people don't have time to go and do something just for fun they need to be working they need to earn money and provide for their family they don't have time to just go roll around and do and do jujitsu or do do martial arts you know um even for the kids a lot of the time it's difficult for them to come because their parents send them to work on the farm or take them to work on the farm. It's, it's not easy for people to come here and to persuade the, the parents and the families and people in general why it's important or you know, why it's a good thing to, to spend your time doing martial arts. It's, it's not as easy as, as you'd think. Um, the kids who are already here training, they can obviously see the benefit and you know, it's, it's a, basically one of the only ways that they can get together and have fun and, and play um, apart from just playing on the street because uh, there's no other clubs. There's no other, uh, it's not like in the UK or where you can go do any sport you like, that your parents can take you to, to do any kind of, to, to any sport team or to go to learn how to play guitar, learn how to play drums or, you know, whatever you want. Basically you can, you can take your kid to any kind of club to, to keep them occupied, uh, you know, here there's nothing like that. It's like you work on the farm, you can go play football in the field, or you can come to the gym here, basically. Um, so they can obviously see the benefits. Like they're having fun here. That the kids are getting, um, the better they're getting at jujitsu, the more they're enjoying it because you know they're starting to understand actually what it is, um, and it's becoming. It makes more sense to them now. So they, you know, when you start being able to tap people, try and sweep people everywhere, you start having a bit more fun. In the beginning, you can't really do anything, so you're a bit confused, like why are you even there. But when you start triangling people every day and and getting arm bars, it's a bit addictive. Like as everyone everyone gets addicted to that, everyone keeps coming back. Especially if you come and you're not one of the best ones in in the class, you're going to get for sure choked, uh, tapped, multiple times, swept all over the place. You won't really know what, what you're doing. But the ones who do stick it out, the ones who do persevere, they start to believe in themselves more. That they believe that they can, they can learn, they can get better, and they start to have confidence in themselves that okay, that they they have the ability to to reach the same place or to depass other other kids that they thought were better than them, you know, or other guys that they thought had a maybe were stronger than them or. Or something like that. They they start to believe in themselves that okay, maybe that guy isn't better than me. I can also learn. I can also, 
you know, be better than him. I can, I can be on the same level as him. So we're trying to, you know, bring the parents, get the parents onto the same page. The kids have already kind of understood that because they, they're improving so much. But the parents are most of the time are thinking like, what are my kids doing there? You know, they need to be working. Why are they going to the, to the foundation there just to do this sport? What are they going to do with that sport? But, you know, with time, they'll see as the kids are doing better, as, as we start to organize some competitions and things like that, and they start to see how well their kids are doing, um, things will only start to, to grow. That's incredible, man. It really is. I mean, Sam, I'm going to level with you. I'm listening to your story. And um, naturally, I'm, I'm trying to drop myself in, in your position. Um, you know, a, a, a hot country, don't speak the language, a complete uncertain future. Like, I just know that I've, I, I struggle a lot. Has there been any times where it's it's been really difficult or really hard? Like, what's been the biggest obstacle you've had to face? Um, yeah, so... In the in those first four or five months, when we when we didn't have very many students, we didn't have any uniforms. My French was like terrible. I couldn't. I basically I'm living with a family that is only French speaking, so a mum and uh, seven kids. Um, and in the beginning, I I couldn't really talk to them. I could, you know, basic like hi, good morning, good afternoon, good night, and that's, that's that was about it. You know. I couldn't understand what they were saying. They couldn't understand what I was trying to say. So that was the biggest thing for me in the beginning. And also in the, in the foundation, even when I'm teaching the classes, I can show the techniques. But then when someone's trying to ask me something, I, don't, I, I didn't have a clue what they were saying. And I couldn't explain anything back. So that was the, the biggest challenge for me in the beginning was just being able to understand people and explain myself. And it's difficult, uh, not just in a teaching from a teaching aspect, but in general life, if you can't have a conversation with someone, if you can't chat to people, it's very isolating. You know, you're, you're, you're just basically calling people on the phone to, to have a, to actually talk with someone because the people I was around most of the time, there's a few people here speaking English, but not very many. Um, so yeah, basically most of the people I, I couldn't really talk with. And now that's becoming a lot easier after, you know, almost a year of being here. You know, one thing I wonder, it's also like, um, I'm thinking about myself as well, which is, I mean, training in an academy with a lot of people, I'm, I'm mostly thinking about, oh, how am I going to improve my half guard and my sweeps from De La Riva and so on. And you get to a place where you're the only person who knows jiu-jitsu and you have to teach people from scratch. So a lot of your objectives when it comes to jiu-jitsu must have changed. Yeah, and, and I wonder how, how like the whole experience, like from the moment you touch there, uh, with the obstacles so far, how do you think they've impacted you the most? Like, um, yeah. So you're right. Um, when I was in the UK, I was exactly like that. I was training for myself, like to improve myself, to to become a better jujitsu athlete, to become a better competitor, and to win competitions. Basically, that was my goal from training, from going to jiu-jitsu classes. I was teaching on and off. Um, I was, when I was at university, I was coaching the, the uni team like two times a week, just, um, which was super irregular, basically. Uh, it was like different guys each week, so we didn't get a chance to progress a lot. Um, but other than teaching there, 
and covering some classes for coaches at Fight Zone, um, or if I was back in my hometown, coach, uh, my coach uh, in Fight Works in Turkey. I had to change my objectives completely from trying to be better at jiu-jitsu to uh, trying to be better at teaching jiu-jitsu, trying to be better at teaching, trying to learn how to teach, trying to um, change the focus from making myself better to making other people better, which was not easy. Have Have you had the chance to roll with Mr. Ngani? No, no. <laughs> Even after he's been here a bunch of times um, since I've been here, you know, he's stayed, he's been in the village, uh, staying for like a month at a time, maybe like that. But usually when he's been back here, it's been as a break to visit family, uh, visit friends um, and have a break from hard training, I guess. And because as soon as he goes back to the US, he's going to be in a training camp for something. So most of the time when he's, when he's here, he's unwinding and, um, Get maybe doing some having some business as well, like he has to attend to uh, meetings with with potential uh, business partners and things like that. So training is not like top of the list when he's here, um, but hopefully soon. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if I'd really want much of that smoke to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure it'd be should it be fun. I'm I'm kind of getting used to uh, rolling with crazy strong guys. Anyway, I mean. Uh, everyone here is uh, more athletic than your average person in the UK because because of the lifestyle, because of working on the farm and working outdoors. Everybody is working like that from a young age. It's not like the kids are um, sitting on the couch playing computer games, uh, things like that. So even from from the kids all the way up to the adults, everyone's like crazy strong. So Ben Gunner is definitely the next the next level of that. So <laughs> you know, I think the guys that here are, you know, I want, give me good. Uh, I wonder how it's going to be like when one day you go to one of the parents and you tell them, uh, we want to take your kid to go train overseas. And when that kid maybe goes and becomes a world champion, like, do you think uh, because of this being brought up with the sense of work being so important, uh, it will impact like the way he, uh, he trains and even competes at high level? Yeah, I think... It's only a matter of time before we have multiple champions from here, purely because of the the work, the work ethic and the athleticism, um, and how dedicated they are to the training because they don't have anything else to occupy themselves with other than you know work. But in terms of the parents, um, like uh, I can see that they they I can't see them really objecting because it's going to be like a, an opportunity for their kid to, to go and do something which they never thought was going to happen. You know, like they never, a lot of the parents here would, would not imagine that their kids are going to have the opportunity to, to travel, to do something abroad or to even many of them to even leave the village. They'll, they'll probably be here working their whole life. You know, um, it's going to be interesting definitely, but, um, and, and for sure with time it's going to happen, but we have to be patient because like I said, we started from scratch and it's only been 10 months so far but considering it's, it's only 10 months the level is is good we, we don't have our first blue belt yet but soon uh, maybe in a couple of months i'll be given first blue belts um so hopefully i'm hoping that in 2022 if if covid's not um causing too much disruptions that we'll be able to travel with i don't know maybe let's say somewhere between six and ten 
um, guys from down from the gray belts up to blue belts. Um, and yeah, where we had to travel somewhere like Europe or, or US to do some big competitions because if we're going to pay to travel, if we're going to pay for passports, plane tickets, everything like that, there's no point to travel to do some small local competition. We might as well do something big like the Europeans or the kids' Pan Ams. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. And you know, that's the thing that's motivating me now and that makes me feel okay about not uh, pursuing or not getting competition results for myself is that like, if I can get the guys here to be standing on the top of a podium somewhere, it's going to be much more rewarding than winning another competition myself. That's, that's an incredible mindset, man. And listen, I want you to make us a promise. If, if, you, if that time does come and you do make plans, I want you to promise you'll let us know. And um, let's see if we can't help you out in making that reality, man, because that's awesome. That's really amazing. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, for sure. Yeah, that's that's a long-term goal now. I mean, so, I mean, my plan was to come for one year, be like helping the team that was or that I thought was already here, uh, increase the level, go back and then, you know, uh, carry on with what I was doing before, basically, uh, work as a physio um, and keep competing myself. But then as soon as I realized that we we're starting everything from scratch and that, um, you know, basically I was trying to, we we're building a team from nothing. I decided to to stay here. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna live here permanently now. That's the plan, um, and try to develop a team and get you know the guys all the way up to black belt level. Uh, before that, obviously, we're intending on on making as many champions as possible through all the belt levels. Um, so I'm I'm excited to dedicate myself to to be to coach these guys and do the best I can to, um, you know, to help them succeed in jujitsu and, and, you know, cause I can see the potential from the guys here and I know that we're not going to, there's no point for me to just stay coach for one year and then leave and go home. Like, cause then they're going to do what, you know, with, with jujitsu, they need someone here coaching to, uh, constantly to help progress them. So, I mean, what else can I be doing in my mind? What else can I be doing in the UK? or anywhere that's more, I guess, more useful, more more rewarding or more helpful than um, spending my time doing that. I mean, yeah, I'm going to miss out on what getting, getting uh, the competition results for myself. That's not my main goal now. My main goal is to help them, develop them. Um, I mean, there's guys here that they're already super addicted to jujitsu, like uh, like Frank, the guy, the 15-year-old there that's coming every day, he wants to be a world champion in jiu-jitsu. So my goal is to to help him get there uh, and any of the others as well. Um, so I mean, I'm here for the for the coaching part of that, but unfortunately, I can't help with the financial part of of that. You know, so we're going to need long term. We're going to need sponsors and uh, I guess fund fundraising other people to donate and help us take the kids abroad, not just kids, I mean, kids, adults, teenagers, all of them, um, take the guys here abroad to to try and reach their, their goals, I guess, and, you know, get a better life so they don't have to just spend their whole life working on the farm. That, I mean, that's really incredible, man. I mean, super amazing. I, I listen to that, I just hear a, a huge level of, of commitment from you, of self-sacrifice. Um, and all in the pursuit of a, a better goal, not just for jiu-jitsu, but for jiu-jitsu in the lives of others, man. And it's super admirable. I mean, it really is. 
yeah, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm here like sacrificing everything because I mean, look on the on the good side of things, I'm getting to teach jujitsu day in day out. I don't have to do another job. My only job is to teach jujitsu, which is you know I never thought it would be possible to just that be my my sole job. I mean, it's a, when I say job, I'm working as a volunteer. I'm not earning money, but. I don't have to spend money either, you know, I'm being looked after by a family here. So I'm not earning anything. I'm not saving anything, but I'm not going hungry. Um, and I'm getting to teach jiu-jitsu every day. We have electricity, but power cuts frequently, nearly every day. It can be like a whole day. So there's, there's difficult things like that. Like I definitely miss having a shower or a bath, you know, <laughs> I definitely miss, miss being clean most of the time. Um, but there's the upsides outweigh the downsides. Uh, I love teaching jujitsu more than more than I thought I would because before, when like I said, when I was competing a lot, uh, my I wasn't really too invested in teaching because I was very focused on my own training. And now, once I decided to dedicate myself to teaching here, I've, I've started to to love teaching, and it's definitely the highlight of the day or the week. You know, watching the students here sparring and seeing how how far they've come from absolutely nothing and not even understanding what is usually none of them to now that they're, they're triangling each other sweeping each other omoplating each other you know crazy getting crazy submissions having like awesome guide retention so all those things make it worthwhile so i'm not i'm not so hard done by in that sense you know so it, for me, it's, a, it's not too much of a sacrifice because I'm also getting something from it. Even though it's not monetary, it's like it's very much more rewarding than what I was doing before, you know, like working in a hospital, uh, which I didn't like doing. I didn't like working as a physio. Um, yeah, so this this is much more rewarding for me. So I'm happy to to give myself to to that cause. There is one question we usually ask our guests, which is um, uh, if you're meeting a white belt for the first time and you only had six months to spend with him, what would you teach him? In your case, it's quite interesting because you've actually met white belts for the first time and you didn't even speak the language. So how did you, like when you started planning on teaching them, what was, what was your mindset? How, how did you implement that? So whenever I start teaching anyone like new to jujitsu, the first thing I always show them is um, I'll, maybe I'll briefly, briefly explain, you know, that there's some different positions like back, mount, side control, and, and things like that. But I try to focus initially on just teaching them how to uh, basically back control and how to choke the guy from the back. Because when that's the first thing that somebody learns, they uh, it's a very dominant position, right? So you, it's quite obvious even to a beginner that when you're on somebody's back and you can feel when you're on somebody's back and you know how to choke them, they can't really do much about it. So they feel immediately that they, you know, they've, they've learned some, some hugely important skill and that, you know, now they, if they get to that position, they're able to, to win the fight, able to, to beat the guy basically. So I tried to do it when I'm, when I'm trying to make the guys or get the guys to understand from nothing, I tried to teach them the positions that they like strong positions like mount and a couple of submissions back and a couple of submissions like choke armbar um 
and then try to link everything else back into that. So basically understand they, are, they have an objective when they, when they come to the class or when they roll in with somebody, they know that they basically, they want to end up on the guy's back so they can choke them or they want to end up in the mounts so they can choke them. Uh, so the first thing they need to know is how to actually stay in those two positions. Um, and then a couple of ways basically on how to get there. Um, and once you've, once you've got that, then you can start to, obviously the routes to the back, for example, would be, you know, from the guard, um, uh, like a sweep and taking the back or a sweep and go to mount. So then you start teaching them, uh, a couple of basic guards, maybe like a close guard sweep to the mount, close guard sweep to the, um, to the mount going to the back. Same thing from an open guard. And then it just develops from there, you know, you're teaching them then, okay, how to control that guard, how to, um, I tried to, maybe the guy will be stopping, uh, when, when they're sparring, they're trying to make those positions work, the, the opponent's going to be countering that position, it's going to be blocking them somehow, even if they don't have techniques that you've taught them, they're going to make up something to, to stop the other guy getting to that position, right? So then I, I try and see, you know, the, the biggest, I guess the, the most common ways that the guys are blocking the positions and then try to help them find a way around it, help them uh, learn how to counter different reactions to get to their position they, they know, which is the back or the mount. And then it just expands from there. You start adding on, adding on, adding on, joining the positions together um, until now where we are at the moment, you know, working with very specific goals in the training. I don't do a lot of um, full sparring. So I don't just say, okay, let's spar, let's go. I put them in one position. I'll get them to, I'll give them a like, very strict objective in their sparring. So for example, it might be even something like today, you just have to get an underhook to win, to win the round. Um, or you have to try to control the guy's leg to win the rounds. Because if you, you keep it too open and too broad for the beginners, it's too overwhelming and too confusing. So keeping it like very uh, narrow and specific objectives, I think it helps them understand what they're trying to do in the moment in, in, in the class, in sparring. So I try and keep it very specific like that. And um, basically, every time I add a new position, which I try to make it follow on from the previous position that they've learned. So um, every time we, we expand on, on their game, basically I'll, I'll try and think of small positional um, or position, specific uh, positional games and sparring uh, rules, rule sets that they can, that we can use for them to learn that position. Basically trying to, trying to brainwash them to, to, to understand the position, which is maybe a little bit complicated. Well, that's that's so good. It's almost like small steps that, over time, uh, they become all these links that is jujitsu. Exactly. Yeah. So in the beginning, maybe you don't. If you try to keep the objective too broad, you're not going to understand what they're really doing, why, or how to make it work. But when you narrow it down. Uh, you link all those games together, and that, that's you know now they've learned a new guard or they've learned a new a new position. So trying to keep it, I'm try, even with the adults, I'm trying to keep it like that. You know, like um, making basically turning jujitsu into a bunch of tiny little games because really it's it's it's, it's a game anyway. It's one big game. Um, it's a little bit complicated, so we have to break it down and, and split it up into different topics. 
One more question that I have for you is if you could have a wall or a billboard almost in every jiu-jitsu gym that says like this one sentence, what would you write on it? One sentence? Yeah. Mm. I, uh, I do not know. I'd have to think about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Baron Bolos don't work in the street. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I'd have to think definitely because um, if it's one sentence, it's got it's got to be a good one, right? So it can be something which I'm just some kind of rabble that I'm coming off with, like I'm talking now. You know, I'll have to think it. It's going to be written down. It's going to be good. You let us know, man. You let <laughs> so, us know. Well, on that note, uh, is there anything you'd like you'd like to drop for our listeners, uh, especially like I know I'm, I'm guessing any help anybody that can help. Uh, in this cause uh, how can they learn more about it please let us know please drop drop, drop all the shout outs that you need okay um, yeah so I guess we can start with like to follow what's going on here in the foundation basically I, I'm the only one posting stuff about it because there's no one else working here as such we've got some other local coaches but I'm the only one that's on Instagram most of the time uh, from my Instagram page and from I made one for the For the jiu-jitsu team here which we're calling the Batier Death Squad because the, the, the name of the village is Batier and obviously you have the Danaher Death Squad so to steal the name from a uh, you know a, a well a well-known team you know to just kind of give us a give ourselves the challenge Batier Death Squad is in we're, we're going to push ourselves to, to get to that kind of level where we can be challenging those kind of guys so the Instagram for the the team here is at Batier Death Squad um, you can post a link um, so the guys know how to spell it. Sure. Um, so you can follow what's going on from my Instagram, from the from the Death Squad Instagram. Um, in terms of helping out with things financially here, there's um, I set up back about a year ago. I set up a PayPal link, uh, which is paypal.me slash helping Harry. Uh, that's still there, you know, um, to anyone that wants to donate to the product. Um, in terms of sending stuff here, donations, any, we, we're Scramble has already taken care of us in terms of the geese, you know, they've helped us so much. We've got about a hundred geese here now from them. Um, so we don't need anyone to send us any geese, um, but any Nogi stuff is cool. Um, but to be honest, equipment like that is not our biggest problem. Uh, it's mainly things like, you know, to do with the, the water and electricity situation and, paying for travel and um, anything like that so it's basically financial is going to be more useful to us because we already have the, the equipment side of things covered um so you can donate through paypal or uh, you know you know one thing yeah. that that uh, blew me away actually i forgot to mention is the batier dev squad you were the one who actually drew the t-shirts that uh, i think yeah. scramble made it's insane Yeah, yeah. So that's when I was. Um, I mean, I used to draw a lot when I was a kid, but I haven't really drawn for a number of years. Um, but when I was stuck in the UK in, in the lockdown and I couldn't come back here, I was like, you know, trying to keep focus on the foundation, trying to, you know, keep my mind on that. So I was like, what can I do? So I started drawing some designs, uh, basically with the idea of making some merch to raise money for the foundation. And you know, the first run that we made, I, I, I spent ages basically relearning how to 
how to draw. Um, made some cool designs from, I had some pictures of the kids pulling funny faces, like zombie faces and stuff. So I was like, okay, let me try and draw this up, uh, you know, arrange it into a cool design and um, try and make some merch to sell. So yeah, got the drawing done, Scramble produced a thousand t-shirts uh, for us, which we we sold, is that a thousand? It wasn't a thousand, sorry, a hundred. We're planning on making a thousand, but the first time was a hundred t-shirts. We basically sold in um, 24 hours minus a couple, which are small sizes, which uh, were lingering. But yeah, the, the first hundred there, they sold out real quick. So we're going to do another run of hopefully about a thousand, um, which we'll put on sale. We have to hopefully we'll have a series of different uh, shirts that we can keep selling to keep raising money. Uh, but yeah, it takes time to, to do this kind of drawings. And, you know, I had time when in lockdown when I was uh, stuck in the UK to do it. And now I'm back here teaching every day. I mean, I have time, but normally I'm, it's tiring. Uh, I'm also training with the, you know, some adults in the morning going to teach in the evening. So in between, you've got to have a, at least for me, I find it like drawing is, is tiring because uh, I draw slowly and um, I have to be focused on what I'm doing. So mm. I haven't, haven't done any new designs since I've been back here, but I'm planning to do a few more, you know, um, to sell, so I need to get on that to be honest. Yeah, those are amazing, man. Like I'm, I'm looking forward to getting getting one of those shirts myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, they're gonna the original one there the, with the zombie kids. They're gonna do. We're gonna do a big batch of that. So the first the first run we when we sold a hundred in a day, that was you know um, just from me and Scramble posting uh, posting the stuff. But hopefully, when we get a big a big batch made. Um, we'll ask Francis if he can help share it. Uh, you know, he's got a lot of followers, and um, when he if he wins the belt in uh, a month's time, he's gonna have a lot more. You know, so a big audience, uh, and hopefully we can sell a thousand, no problem. And that's gonna if we sold a thousand t-shirts, that would um, probably make us enough money to travel with about eight to ten kids. Yeah, man. Hopefully, hopefully he wins. Cause one thing, one thing that uh, it's always easy to forget. It's uh, it's uh, when uh, Francis Ngannou is there in the ring. He's not just there for himself. Or it's like it's almost like he carries the village with him, right? Yeah, for sure. And that's um something I'm looking forward to as well. To be honest, uh, for his next fight, the next fight for the belt. There, um, we're organizing a big party in the foundation here, so we're inviting basically the whole village, um. To, to come to the foundation, we're going to put some tents outside, uh, you know, cook some food for everyone, and, um, and yeah, get all the kids, all the parents, and whoever to come and watch uh, the fight at the foundation. So that's going to be that'll be good, and hopefully, you know, he'll get the job done. Amazing. Well, Sam, thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, man, we no really, problem. really appreciate it. It uh, it's been an incredible story to listen to. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, sorry if I went off on a few tangents. Nah, Happens, not at uh, all, man. Not at all. It was great. Sorry, sorry about the connectivity issues, but I think we've made do. Um, thank you so much again. Yeah, I don't know if uh, how well it recorded. You know, if it was cutting out in the middle of when I was speaking or, or uh, what. But um, we'll soon let find me know out. anyway. If, if there's anything else you guys need to know, or like, if there's any one thing I can say is, um, if there's any way anyone else can come out here. Uh, at the moment, it's a little bit difficult because of COVID. The 
the borders become really are closed now. Um, the only reason I was able to come back is because I actually had a resident card, which we applied for before I left. Um, but as soon as all that's you know back open again, and also if any jujitsu guys want to come out, stay here, train with us, um, train with the kids, with the students here. You know we can sort you out a place to stay, no problem. Um, we'd be happy to have anyone come come and stay and train with us. So, yeah, coaches or just guys that want to train, anyone is welcome to come. Um, just best best way to just hit me up through Instagram, um, and we can sort it out. Incredible, man! Incredible. Cool. On that note, guys, thank you so much for listening. Stay, yeah. Stay safe in these streets. <laughs> oh, thanks, Sam. Thanks. Okay. Speak to you guys again. Bye. That's it.